you chose to join us uh, this Sunday morning as we celebrate uh, the Lord's Day. We celebrate the, the death of our Savior and the empty tomb. Uh, as Peter said, we are in a sermon series right now in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts comes right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right after the gospel accounts of Jesus' actual life. The book of Acts begins with Jesus uh, uh, talking to his disciples after his resurrection. He tells them he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He tells them to go to all across the known world, the ancient world, to spread this good news that has just happened, his death on, our, uh, on the cross, in our place, and his resurrection and how that affects us. And then the disciples do. They receive the Holy Spirit. They get sent throughout the ancient world. And uh, about, I don't know, 10 chapters in or so, 12 chapters in, we meet this new guy. There's this new guy that shows up uh, and his name is Saul. And at the beginning of the book, he's actually literally a terrorist. He's literally uh, imprisoning and killing other Christians. He's trying to breed terror in the lives of the early church. He's a Jewish, Jewish religious leader, and he hates what the church is all about. He hates the gospel. He thinks that, uh, that it's actually worshiping a false god, right? Because under the Jewish religion, you cannot uh, believe in and, and worship and pray to a human being, right? And so Paul thinks he's actually working for God. He's terrorizing the early church. And uh, as he's going from city to city doing this, Jesus shows up, knocks him on his butt, and says, you are going to be my servant. I'm saving you right now. I am really who I, really who I said I am. And I'm going to use you now. And not only use you, but you're going to suffer a lot for my sake. And from then on, Paul is used in powerful ways by Jesus through the Holy Spirit to uh, go throughout all over the ancient world. These, these journeys that he's taking to plant new churches, to spread this new gospel, uh, journeys that take thousands and thousands of miles of him hiking and walking through dangerous, uh, thief-infested uh, wildernesses and climbing mountains and taking these long ship uh, voyages uh, on ship. And so today we're going to pick up, we're going to see this guy again. He's now on his third missionary journey, his third church planting journey. And uh, last week's passage ended with him uh, reporting to the church that sent him out, and then him now beginning his third missionary journey. He uh, has just gone to a bunch of the cities that he planted in his first two journeys in order to strengthen them, to go back to these churches and, and teach them more, to build them up in the faith, to encourage them. And now today he's going to end up in a new city, the city called Ephesus. He actually had a brief stop in this city. If, if you were here last week, we uh, talked about how on his way home, on his second journey, he did stop in Ephesus for probably just a few weeks. But in many ways, this is a brand new city for him, a city that's strategic for him, a city that's very influential, that's in a really influential place. And a city that, if reached by the gospel, will then continue to spread the gospel all across this region. So the Holy Spirit prompts him to do this, and I'll, I'll spoil it for you. The end of our passage today, the Spirit does this. Spreads the gospel all across the province, the region of Asia, through uh, reaching this one city here in Ephesus. And Paul actually spends the most time he does in any city and all of his missionary journeys here in Ephesus. He actually spends three years here, and it's kind of the central hub for his ministry that he does in this third journey. So this morning, we're going to be reading from Acts 19. Uh, we're going to, that should say 19. That's the wrong reference. 
didn't update that. Sorry about that. And we don't have a second service to uh, fix it for. So anyway, that's wrong. Paul is in Ephesus, but we're going to read the first 10 chapters of, first 10 verses in uh, chapter 19. So if you want to flip there, it's on the, it should be in your uh, worship folders on that insert, or you can just follow along on the screen. Acts 19 verses 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some, or but, yeah, but when some became stubborn, And continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took his disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So in today we see Paul go to this new city, the city of Ephesus. An incredibly influential city, like I said, it's it's here on the coast. So here is modern-day Turkey, and then down here would be, you know, the Mediterranean Sea. Ephesus is right here, an incredibly influential city on the coast, both influential politically and economically, as well as through trading and things like that. It's also a city that had one of the seven ancient uh, wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. So an incredibly beautiful uh, piece of architecture and uh, relatedly, you can tell that since it was a Greek city and then a Roman city, that they were incredibly uh, religious as well, worshiping uh, the Greek gods. So here they worshiped Artemis, especially in the city, and the city was kind of surrounded by this incredible temple that they built for her. And the city was also incredibly fascinated with magic and with the occult. And we're going to actually see this play up in the next uh, few passages that we read about Ephesus as well. But this uh, large city is probably 200, 250,000 people. So an enormous city also had a really big Jewish population there. So we see uh, Paul going like he does in every city that he can on these uh, church planning journeys. He starts by, if there is a synagogue, he goes to that synagogue because he knows that these people have the Old Testament. He knows that they believe in the one true God. So he starts by finding a place where they have similar background knowledge and also a synagogue uh, actually had, er, w- within the ways that Jewish people worshipped in the synagogue, there was a way for a traveling rabbi to sp- stand up and speak to them. So unlike our church services where we don't just pass the mic and say, hey, any stranger want to tell us what you think? It actually did kind of happen back then. Um, and so Paul was actually able to, in all these cities, actually stand up and preach the gospel to say, hey, let me tell you about what our, what our Hebrew scriptures testifies about. Let me show you how Jesus is the solution to all this we read and believe in the Hebrew scriptures, or our Old Testament. 
And we see, like in every city, there is great opposition against Paul. And even though there is great opposition, he actually is able to stay here for three years. So if you remember from many of the other cities, people rise up against Paul, the gospel message, they get jealous, they hate him, and almost always he gets driven out of the city, often very violently. But in this city, even though there is great opposition, he is able to stay for three years. And in this city, there is also great reception to the gospel. A church is born, a very influential church, and the gospel spreads out of this church in urban Ephesus to the surrounding areas as well. And if you know your New Testament, you know that there's a book in the New Testament called Ephesians. So Paul, later on in his journey, writes a book back to this church. So Ephesus, very, uh, a new city for us, also a very important one, just historically as well as one here uh, in the book of Acts. So our passage starts with Paul going to this new city, returning to Ephesus, which he had only been there probably just for a few weeks before. So he's returning to this new city, and he comes across this group of disciples. Luke, the, the author of Acts, calls these people disciples. So Paul stumbles upon them or, or finds them, and he begins to talk to them. So this actually kind of reminded of uh, reminded me of when I first, as a, a freshman, first went to Bethel uh, University as a naive 19-year-old, thinking that, hey, I'm going to a Christian university, so everyone's going to be really strong, mature uh, believers. And I soon realized, I, I love Bethel, so I'm not speaking negatively against it, but I soon realized that there were many people here at this school that called themselves Christians, many people that Uh, attended this school that were a part of my freshman class, lived in the dorms with me, that called themselves disciples of Jesus, yet either their life or what they believed proved that they actually really weren't Christians, that they weren't weren't really disciples. So it kind of reminded me of uh, the Princess Bride. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. So essentially, you keep calling yourself a disciple of Jesus fellow freshman. You, you keep calling yourself a Christian, but I do not think uh, the way that you're using that word is, is the right way. I think you kind of have to believe that Jesus really is God. I think you kind of have to believe that he died on the cross for our sins to save us in order to be a Christian. And that's kind of what Paul is experiencing here. He goes back into Ephesus. He finds these people that we don't know exactly why they're described as disciples, uh, whether it's Luke saying that they are. Or they said, hey, we're disciples Um, whatever it might be, but that's kind of what's happening to Paul. He shows up in this new city, he meets some disciples, and then he soon realizes that they are missing some really important, vital stuff. He asks them some questions and then realizes that maybe maybe they know about Jesus, maybe not. Maybe they've heard about him, but these are people that know a ton of their Bible, and they're even using some of the right language, yet they're not Christians. So Paul passes through the inland. He comes to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So even though we see this in the Bible, this is not a good example for us to do. So don't, don't literally do this. When you find another Christian, whether at Hiawatha or, or meet them some other place, the first question should not be, uh, Where were you baptized? Tell me, tell me what church, what denomination were you baptized into? And then go from there. Paul is doing this here, and we're going to see why in just a second. But he asks them, they call themselves disciples, so he asks, into what were you baptized? And they respond, into John's baptism. So these people, these disciples, these 12 
disciples here, they knew a lot about the Bible, and they knew a lot about John. So they almost for sure were Jewish people who were disciples of John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, if you know that character. And kind of like Apollos from last week, although Apollos was a Christian. Uh, we talked about that last week. I'm not going to get into it. But kind of like that, they were probably disciples of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, and then were sent out from Jerusalem for some reason, and then never fully realized who John actually was preaching about. They never fully uh, heard about Jesus, or maybe they did, but they didn't know about Jesus' death and resurrection and his baptism. So these uh, disciples are disciples of this guy named John, which uh, when I kind of think of this guy, John the Baptist, in my mind, this character is kind of like a cross between Gimli from Lord of the Rings and Tom Hanks from Castaway. So right before Jesus starts his public ministry, so Jesus is, you know, in his, in his early 30s, there is this guy out in the wilderness, a prophet, a guy named John, and what he's doing is he's baptizing people. So that's why he's called John the, the, the Baptizer. So he's not actually a Baptist. He's not a part of our denomination. But this guy, he, he's uh, baptizing people in the Jordan River. And he's, his goal is he's setting the stage for the Messiah. His goal is to tell people about who will come after him. And uh, Paul even picks up, about, uh, picks up on this when he describes John's baptism. So John, he's out in the wilderness. He's baptizing people in the Jordan River for repentance. For repentance. Looking ahead to the Messiah. And this guy, John, actually had disciples himself. So you go back and read about him in the narrative accounts in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see that he actually has disciples. So that's almost for sure who these 12 that Paul encounters in our passage today. And John's whole ministry... John the Baptist, his whole ministry was to prepare the way for the Messiah, to prepare the way for the Christ, this, this coming king, this coming rescuer, the solution to the problems in the world that God had promised that he would send. But he reminded people, I am not the Messiah. I am not the coming king. But rather, my job is to prepare the way for the Messiah. And here we see in the story of John's disciples, we're reminded again, that you can know a lot about the Bible. That you can know lots and lots of truths about God. Even about the Messiah, which John's disciples knew about it because they knew the Old Testament. And, and John was preaching that the Messiah, the Christ, would come. So you can know all of that, yet you can still not be saved. You can still miss out on salvation. Without knowing the Messiah personally, without putting your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf, which is called the gospel, then you're not saved. Otherwise, Paul would have just left these guys alone. If, if all you needed to know was some info in the New Testament, you just needed to know uh, about God's plan to rescue the world, which, which John was telling people about, it's coming. If that's all you needed to know, then John would have said, hey, guys, who are you baptized in? And they would say, baptized in John. He did that for us. He would say, well, great, I'm going to move on. I'm, I'm going to go find other people that uh, have not heard the gospel yet. But that's not the case. In a very anti-Minnesotan, in a very uh, not passive-aggressive way, Paul asks these guys really hard questions. And, and, and tells them, you guys aren't actually saved. You're, you're baptized into John's baptism, which is just a symbol of, of repenting. 
and looking forward to something even great, greater, let me tell you about that something even greater. He is here, and his name is Jesus. This is a great caution for so many of us who live here in Minneapolis and St. Paul. People who grew up in Minnesota or in the Midwest that kind of know a lot about the Bible. Just by growing up in the Midwest, you probably, uh, maybe you were confirmed. Maybe you went to a VBS or you went to a Bible camp or you're part of a youth group. Yet, like we see in these guys, you can know a lot about the faith without being in the faith. You can even be associated with a church yet without truly being in the church, without truly being saved and being a part of God's family. So what was this big difference? What made Paul uh, confront these guys and tell them that they're wrong and that they need something else? Why does Paul make such a big deal about this? What needs to change in these disciples' lives before they actually are truly believers? What's lacking in their knowledge? What's lacking in their association? We actually summarized this a lot last week, but uh, our passage expands on it, so we're going to talk even more about that this morning. But what was missing was that they didn't know of Jesus. They didn't know of Jesus' baptism. And relatedly, they didn't know about the work of the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit lives within his people. So even though these two things, Jesus' baptism and the Holy Spirit, they're intrinsically linked together, let's first talk about the Holy Spirit and then we'll come back and look at why Jesus' baptism is different, why it's better, why they needed to be baptized into Jesus' salvation and why John's baptism was not enough. But let's first, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. First, these disciples of John, they say that they don't know about the Holy Spirit Yet, John himself, in his ministry, talked about the Holy Spirit. In in Luke 3, 16, John uh, answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So not only did John teach about the Holy Spirit, the whole Old Testament speaks about uh, the active and powerful Holy Spirit, Spirit of God as well, although less or more veiled, less clear than it is in the New Testament. So probably what's going on is that these disciples of John didn't know this about the Holy Spirit. They didn't know about Pentecost, which happened uh, at the very beginning of Acts, right? So Jesus said, my Holy Spirit's going to come into my church. And then a few chapters later, we see that actually happen. We see the Holy Spirit come on the disciples in supernatural type ways. They start speaking in unknown languages. It was kind of a reverse of the curse of the Tower of Babel, if you know that story way back in the book of Genesis. And now the Holy Spirit's empowering the church, empowering the disciples to now actually take this message all across the ancient world. He gives them languages and power to be able to spread the gospel to all tongues, tribes, races, and nations. So that's probably, or that, that is what they didn't know about. They didn't know that part about the Holy Spirit. And relatedly, they didn't know that the Holy Spirit now lives and empowers all believers. And if the Holy Spirit does, doesn't live in you, doesn't empower you, you actually aren't really saved. 
Paul actually writes, when he writes a, a letter to the church in Rome, another one of his letters, he makes this very clear. In, in Romans 8 9, he says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So that's what these disciples are missing. They don't realize, they, they know that there is a Holy Spirit. They know that there is a, a Spirit of the one true God, yet they don't know what the Spirit is now doing in the world. What he did back in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and he doesn't know, they, they don't know, now that through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit now fills and indwells and empowers all believers. So they hear about this, and they become baptized. They believe in who John was pointing to. They believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So Paul explains to them the full gospel of Jesus living the perfect life that we could never live, of Jesus dying the death in our place, the death that we deserve, of Jesus being raised in a resurrected body, never to die again, as an example of what we're promised for all of those who trust in him. And Paul teaches them that Jesus now sends his spirit to fill all believers, not just kings, not just prophets, not just special people in Old Testament times, but now to fill all believers. And the Holy Spirit is now a promise, a guarantee of our salvation and of our resurrected eternal bodies that are promised to us that look just like Jesus and his resurrected physical body as well. And that this Holy Spirit goes into all disciples to empower them to live in righteous and powerful ways, spreading the gospel wherever he leads them. And these disciples, they believe. And they go from being just disciples of John to now being disciples of Jesus Christ, who John pointed to. They put their trust in Jesus Christ, which is the fulfillment of all that John was doing and looking forward to. They believe in Jesus and are baptized truly. And then what happens is kind of strange, right? You maybe are wondering what is going on. Paul now puts his hands on these people and supernatural things start happening. The Holy Spirit comes into them in unique ways and they start speaking in unknown languages, whether supernatural languages or Mandarin or Swahili or something. They start doing some pretty strange things, which can lead to lots of confusion. First time I read through this, I'm looking at commentaries and Bible notes and previous passages, trying to figure out what, what exactly is going on here. So you might be wondering, after we believe, do we need a special prayer to get the Holy Spirit? Because I kind of didn't get that. So maybe I need to come ask the pastor for this special prayer to get the Holy Spirit. Or what does it mean that when I became a Christian, I didn't start doing some of this stuff? When I became a Christian, I didn't start prophesying. I didn't start speaking in unknown languages? Am I a Christian? Or maybe I don't have the Spirit because I've never done those type of things. Or maybe you think back in your life and you think, oh, I got a C- minus in Spanish. I'm horrible at languages. Does that mean I don't have the Holy Spirit? So let me try to answer some of these questions and encourage you, those in this room who are Christians. So what is going on here? As well as what's going on in other places previously in Acts? Something similar has happened four or five times already in Acts. So let me give you kind of three answers to what's going on here, why it's unique, why it's important that it happened here, and what it means for us. The first thing is that this event was proving that Paul is who he said he is. He, it's proving that there really is a Holy Spirit. It's proving that Paul has authority given to him by God, that he's not just some liar trying to teach people 
false things. Remember, at the very beginning, we talked about how Paul hated the church, right? Because the church was saying, this human, this guy, Jesus, should be worshipped, right? And we know, if you know the Old Testament, if you know uh, the Ten Commandments, you don't worship humans, right? That's like one of the big ten rules. And so what's going on here, we see that the, the God is uniquely, right, they don't have the New Testament yet, God is uniquely in powerful ways showing these people that this really is from God, that Paul's message, this gospel that he's preaching really is true. So the supernatural event is, is giving credibility, it's uh, validity to Paul's authority and the truth of this gospel message. Also, what's going on, we kind of talked about the, Pente- uh, the event called Pentecost earlier before. This is a mini Pentecost type event. The Spirit is supernaturally moving in powerful ways among believers, causing them to be able to prophesy or, or proclaim, declare truths about God and the gospel, as well as uh, supernaturally empowering them to speak other languages. So it's a, a mini Pentecost, not happening in Jerusalem, in the, the center of where the, this gospel movement started, but now in a far-off land among uh, a new group of people. So a mini Pentecost is happening. And then thirdly, uh, uh, Luke chooses to use this phrase. He chooses to say there was about 12 disciples here, right? I don't know why he says about. So maybe there wasn't 12, but he wants us to think about the number 12. And so what God is doing here in a new part of the world is he's creating a new type of Israel, a fulfillment of Israel. He's creating a new set of disciples. He want, Luke wants, the, the author of, of Acts here, he wants the reader to think God's doing something new and powerful again. He's creating a new people for himself. He's saving a group of people and establishing them uh, in his kingdom. And now mostly in a spiritual sense, not in Israel an actual nation and a people group, not in just the 12 disciples in Jerusalem, but now it's beyond just Israel. It's beyond just the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. The gospel is now for everyone. God is creating a new people, a new kingdom that is beyond just Jerusalem and ethnic Israel. The Spirit doesn't discriminate and fills and empowers all believers from all over the world. This is actually great news for us. As, as Americans, we can tend to write ourselves in as the uh, heroes of the story or to think that the world revolves around us, right? We do this all the time. But if we think about who we are, most of us in this room don't speak ancient Hebrew or even ancient Greek. Most of us in this room are not an Israelite, right? We don't, we don't have our citizenship in the nation of Israel. Most of us in this room are not ethnically Jewish. So this type of mini Pentecost that's happening is, is, is such great news for us. Is that the gospel has left Hebrew-speaking, uh, ethnically Jewish in the nation of Israel and is now gone to, to people just like us. So let this be great news for us that the gospel, because of events like this, or uh, because of the Holy Spirit starting here in Ephesus and, and the gospel spreading out, that the gospel now comes to us. Non-Hebrew speaking, non-Israelite type people.
And one more thing, we're going to read from the Gospel Transformation Bible. Helps kind of summarize what's going on here. What, if we look at all of the book of Acts so far and kind of summarize what's going, it helps us understand this kind of unique supernatural thing that the Holy Spirit is doing. Helps it be a little less confusing. The Gospel Transformation Bible writes, In Acts 2, Jewish believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 8, Samaritans, are ha- who are a half-Jewish, half-Gentile people. In Acts 8, Samaritans are filled with the Spirit after they believe the Gospel preached by Philip. Acts 10 and 11, Peter preaches to Gentiles who believe and are filled with the Spirit. Here in Acts 19, Paul meets with some followers of John the Baptist who didn't even know all that Jesus did and taught, so they believe and are filled. In this progression, we see the ever-expanding scope of the gospel. God's mercy is poured out deep and wide. The Spirit's ministry is expansive, just as Jesus' ministry was, including those who previously were excluded or uninformed. The gospel-centered focus of Acts can be pictured by an expanding uh, concentric by expanding concentric circles. The Holy Spirit brings Jesus' good news to a small group of disciples, then to the Jews, then to the Samaritans, then to the Gentiles, and then to the entire world. So rather than looking at our passage today in Acts 19 and think when people come to Christ in Hiawatha Church, they will immediately need a prayer by one of the pastors with his hands on them and then supernatural events will happen. Rather than think that is the norm, we should see the entire book of Acts described here, summarized for us to see how the gospel is spreading from a group of 12 to Jerusalem, to the Jews, to the Samaritans, and now to the entire world, which Minneapolis-St. Paul is a part of. All right, we talked about the Holy Spirit here. Now let's look at the baptism. Jesus' baptism versus John's baptism. So why is Jesus' baptism so important? Why does Paul confront these guys that seemingly are good, uh, God-fearing, believing, following people? Why does he confront them and make such a big deal about them not being baptized in Jesus' name? Or if we think back to our passage from last week, why did Priscilla and Aquila have to go through the hard and awkward conversation of calling out this powerful preacher and leader, Apollos, in order to tell him about Jesus' baptism, not just John's baptism? So what needs to change for these 12 disciples to move from being just disciples of John the Baptist to actually being true Christians, true disciples of Jesus Christ. In verse three, 3, we read, uh, And Paul said, In what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul helps summarize the difference between these two baptisms. And, and John's baptism never, he, he never meant that that would replace Jesus' baptism. He knew he was a bright neon flashing arrow pointing ahead to the one who was to come towards Jesus. So John's baptism was symbolic of repentance. He said, people, repent, repent for the kingdom of God is coming. Someone's coming. The Messiah is coming. The rescuing king is coming. The solution is coming. 
So John's baptism was a symbol of repentance and looks forward from that time to the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, Jesus. Whereas Jesus' baptism is symbolic of the actual gospel. It's a symbol, it's a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection and our salvation through that. Jesus' baptism is a symbol of us dying to our old, fallen, sinful natures and being resurrected in Christ as new creations. So in other words, John's baptism... I don't have a slide for this. John's baptism shows the need for the gospel. John's John's baptism says we have a need. We must repent. And John's baptism looks forward to the gospel. He says, believe in the one who will come after me. Whereas Jesus' baptism demonstrates and shows off the gospel and looks back at the cross, looks back at what Jesus has accomplished for us. It's also important for us to look, when did Jesus institute his baptism? Was it during his three-year ministry? Was it during the Sermon on the Mount or after he healed people? No, Jesus instituted his baptism after his death and resurrection, after the gospel had taken place. In Matthew 28, so this is after Jesus' death and resurrection, right before his ascension, and Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. So Jesus calls his disciples, his church. He says, all of you, every one of you, wherever I send you, wherever I place you, you're going to spread and declare this gospel. You're going to make disciples. And you're going to baptize these disciples when they believe this gospel as a symbol of what just happened to them. You're going to baptize them as a declaration, as a picture of what just happened to them. Their spiritual, or their death to their spiritual, uh, their death to their sinful fallen nature and their rebirth in Christ, becoming a new creation. Notice, Jesus' baptism isn't repent as much as it is look back to what I already did for you. Like the other sacrament we've been given, the Lord's Supper or communion that Christ gave to, his, uh, gave to his church and tells us to do it over and over again, he says, look back. Look back at what I have done. Not what you did for me, not of a promise that you made to me, but look back at what this symbolizes, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These powerful and symbolic sacraments that Jesus gives his church, we remember by looking back. And we just had one of these baptisms last week. And it was great, and many of you were there, and it was a beautiful, powerful celebration as, we, as we're watching people uh, get baptized, as they're publicly declaring uh, their salvation, their faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you, when you see pictures of that baptism, when you attend another baptism, when you hear people sharing their testimonies of God's salvation in their life, think of your own as well. And look back at what Jesus did as a worshipful, encouraging thing. And just to let you know, we say this often, but just to let you know, we're all about baptisms here because Jesus was. and we, we, we love this. So if you didn't get a chance to get baptized in a lake uh, last weekend, we can try doing it again later this, uh, 
<laughs> summer or fall, although all the lakes are kind of closed now because of E. coli. But we also have a baptismal <laughs> right behind this uh, wall here. There's a big tub that we fill up. If you want to get baptized, we will do it pretty much any time you want. We, we, we think it's important to follow Christ's teaching, to be obedient to him, to let the church celebrate with us our salvation, what God has done in us. So let that be an invitation to you. You don't have to wait for us to say we have a baptism coming up. Come talk to one of the leaders, one of the pastors. We'd love to talk through baptism. Schedule one. Uh, we do it during services or after services, and it's a really great thing. So next time you see one, worship God. Thank God for what he's doing in our church and in our city, and remember your own baptism. Remember your own salvation. Remember the cross and the empty tomb. Look back. So Christian baptism. Jesus' baptism, which is different than John's baptism, is a public declaration. It's a symbol of what Jesus has already done for them. It's a symbol of what already has spiritually happened to someone. Again, Paul in his letter to the church in Rome unpacks this even more for us. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we, if we have been united with him in a death like his, as we go underwater, we shall also be uh, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, which is symbolized as we come out of the water. The New Testament is full of this language when describing our salvation, all of which is pictured in baptism. So I have references for all these if you want, but these are just phrases throughout the New Testament that describes our salvation. And it's descriptive of baptism-type language. So, uh, the part of our baptism where someone goes under the water. It's symbolic of all these things, all these phrases that the New Testament uses to describe our salvation. Our former and sinful natures have died. We have died to our flesh. We're crucified with Christ. We're united in a death like his. The old has passed away. We've been baptized into his death. We've been buried with Christ by baptism into his death. And then our salvation, our resurrection, is also described in baptism-type language as well. We've been born a second time. We're born again. We're now born of the Spirit. We're raised with Christ. We're united in a resurrection like His. We walk in newness of life. We're now new creations. It's no longer I who lives, but it's now Christ who lives within me. And all of these things, too, pointing ahead to our spiritual, physical resurrection at Christ's second coming. The reason Christian baptism is so vital and so important is because it symbolizes the gospel. Not because it's magic, not because if you don't get baptized, you're not saved, but the reason Jesus' baptism is so vital, so necessary not for salvation, but necessary for obedience and for the church and for the spread of the gospel is because it symbolizes that gospel. It, it demonstrates our salvation that we've received through Jesus Christ. Our passage wraps up. It ends with a summary of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. 
So we're actually going to see the next few weeks, we're going to look at more and more instances and, and things that happen in this city. But in these last few verses of our passage this week, Paul kind of steps, or Luke, the author, steps back and says, here's a summary of what happens the next three years. And then in the next few passages, let me tell you some specifics that happen. So he zooms back and summarizes Paul's ministry here in Ephesus. So Paul goes to a synagogue like we've seen in other cities. He speaks boldly. He reasons with these Jewish people and he tries to persuade them, these people in the synagogue, about the kingdom of God. He takes their common truth. He says, you believe in the Jewish scriptures. You believe in what we would call the Old Testament. So let me tell you about how this and this, this coming kingdom of God that you're anticipating and, and, and hoping will come and, and waiting for, let me tell you about how this points ahead to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he opens up the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, and he uses that to persuade them. He says, look at all these prophecies. And look how Jesus uniquely and specifically and perfectly fulfills them. He opens up the history and says, look at the history of our people. And how that's all pointing ahead to Jesus. How every great hero, how Noah and, and Deborah and Esther and, and King David, how all these great heroes are actually just whispers of an even greater hero who did even greater things than them. He's the true and better version of all of them. And let's look at our history every time we failed over and over and over and over again. Even our heroes. Let's look at Jesus and see how he didn't fail. When Adam failed in a garden, Jesus did not fail in his garden. When Moses failed and King David failed and our prophets failed and the whole nation failed, Jesus did not fail. Let's look at the institutions all throughout our holy book. Things like the temple, things like the sacrificial system, things like the kingdom, things like the priesthood. Let me tell you how all of those point ahead to Jesus. How he fulfills every single one of those things. And for three months, Paul boldly and courageously argued and taught about the kingdom of God that is now broken into the world through Jesus Christ. Through the Messiah. And like in every city Paul has been in, we see people reject this message. We see people reject this good news that Paul works tirelessly to show his people that really it is good news. He turns this gospel diamond and tries to show them and persuade them in each facet about how the gospel is good and how it's powerful and how it's beautiful. Yet we see this was their response for many, for most in this synagogue. Some believe, yet many came stubborn. Many continued in unbelief. And not only that, but they spoke evil of the way or evil of Christianity publicly. They weren't just slandering it. They weren't just gossiping about it. But they stood up and they spoke against it. We can often think that apart from Jesus, if we're not Christians, humanity apart from Jesus, that we're actually really just neutral with regards to God. We're not for him. We're not against him. We're just kind of neutral. We're like Switzerland in regards to God. But the reality is, if we're not for him, if we're not in Christ, our default mode is against him. The reality is we're not neutral. Left to our own hearts and our own desires, we're actually against God. 
We run away from him. We reject his love. We rebel against his rule. We'd rather be independent than dependent on him. We'd rather make our own rules. We'd rather believe twisted lies that sound good and tickle our ears than to believe the truth of the gospel. And we see this here play out in our passage here in Ephesus. Some believe, but many in the synagogue do not. And after a few months of Paul boldly, persuasively reasoning with them that their holy book, the one that they trust in, testifies all about Jesus, they still reject it. And despite humanity's facade that we're all about plurality and inclusion and love, diversity of beliefs and worldviews, we see that it doesn't stay neutral. They don't just say, we disagree with you, Paul, but keep on teaching. It's good to have you here. We like another viewpoint. But rather, we see how combative and aggressive and violent opponents to the gospel get. They became stubborn. They continued in unbelief. And they spoke evil about Christianity publicly before others. It's not just that they had a few doubts. It's not just that they kind of struggled to receive every single truth that Paul said, but believed some. It's not that they just kind of relapsed a little bit into unbelief. It's not that they wanted to believe, but just couldn't because there was no good evidence for it. But rather, the default mode of the human heart is to dig our heels in and to be stubborn against God. To know of God's love for us, to know of God's good news of salvation that he offers for free to us. And at the same time, to be intentionally stubborn and fight against it. Because of our hard hearts, because of our pride, because of our independence. Some became stubborn. And notice too that they didn't just have kind of flashes of doubt they weren't just wrestling through all these new changes that, that Paul brought to them and they had to completely rework how they saw the Old Testament scriptures now in light of the gospel. It wasn't that, but rather they continued in unbelief. They continued to disbelieve over and over and over again despite the evidence, despite their holy book that they trusted in. They chose stubbornness. They chose disbelief. For months and months and months, they chose to keep their hearts hard and to disbelieve. And not only that, but they were angry against it. They opposed the gospel. They fought against it. They became enemies of Christianity. Enemies of the way of Christ. They slandered the gospel. They spoke against it publicly and defamed it and lied against it. The answer to the core of the human problem is rejected. The point of all that the Old Testament, their holy book, is about is rejected. And that is the default mode of the human heart, of our hearts, apart from Christ. Yet, just like in every other city, we see that the gospel is powerful. The gospel bears fruit. This is not the only response in Ephesus. Our passage ends with this great news. Seeing how the gospel moves forward despite opposition and rejected, rejection. Paul withdrew from them, from the synagogue that was against him after three months and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the house of Tyrannus. 
or the Hall of Tyrannus, which is some, some public hall where people and thought leaders could come and discuss and teach. And he did so for two years. And we see the fruit of this, the fruit of Paul not giving up, the fruit of the gospel being proclaimed and taught daily, not even just on the Sabbath at the synagogue, but now daily. The fruit is now that throughout Asia, throughout this region that Ephesus was the center of, the word of the Lord was heard among the Jews and among the Greeks. So if here, here's a map of Ephesus. What God did here in Ephesus, that good news, that gospel, disciples being made, churches being planted, spread out all throughout Asia. All different kinds of people, Greek, Greeks and Jews, people of the urban areas and out into the rural villages heard about this gospel. And if you know uh, some of the churches mentioned in the rest of the New Testament, many of them actually are here in this region as well. So despite great opposition, the gospel bears fruit. Many believe and are persuaded. Many humble themselves and believe. Many see this as good news. So as we leave here today, I just want us to pray. I'm going to pray, and would you just join with me? Would you agree? Let us pray that the spiritual fruit that we see the Holy Spirit do in Ephesus and throughout all of Asia, let us pray that the Holy Spirit would do that here in our city too, here in our region too. Let's pray that, uh, let's pray together against hard hearts and against spiritual stubbornness. Let us pray against spiritual unbelief in our own hearts and in our city. Let's pray against the gospel being publicly fought against and defamed and lied about. Let us pray that the Spirit would powerfully save countless more, leading to more and more baptisms and more and more works of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray that we would boldly, each one of us who are believers in this room, that we would boldly teach and preach the gospel individually, as community groups, as friends, as families, and as a church. And let us pray together that through all of this, that the residents of the Twin Cities would hear the word of God and that it would spread to all people, all ethnicities, all uh, uh, different groups of people that God has brought here into the metro area. Let us pray that what God started to do in Ephesus through his spirit through his church, what happened here in our city as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this powerful story, this description of what you did 2,000 years ago in this city and region. Holy Spirit, we pray against these things that we saw that came against your church and your gospel being spread. We pray against hard hearts and spiritual stubbornness and unbelief that continues over and over. We pray against your good news, your gospel being lied about and publicly defamed. Spirit, we pray that you would do powerful things here in our church, in our city, and beyond. That you would save countless more. That, you would, uh, that, that would lead to, to countless more baptisms and countless more works, powerful works of your spirit. Help us as a church to preach and teach and declare the gospel boldly, individually and together with each other. And we pray that through all of this, the residents of the Twin Cities and Minneapolis and St. Paul and all of Minnesota and the Midwest, more and more people would hear the word of the Lord. 
God, we can't do this on our own. We need you to show up, and we ask you to do that in our midst, among us, and through us as we scatter this week. In your powerful and saving name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we respond together with this last song. To the cross I look.